0: You realize there's only one more chapter in this great book. Wow, I'm going to miss. I am going to miss the epistle of the Romans. It has become an old and dear friend to me and I suspect to many of you. Romans chapter 15, page 1138, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible. Page 1138 will land you on the 15th chapter of Paul's letter to the church. At Rome. The month is October. October is a special month because in the month of October, the Nobel Foundation awards their annual Nobel Peace Prize or prizes, actually. And they're awarded to individuals who, in the opinion of the foundation, have made the greatest contribution to humanity in this prior year interesting because the money behind those prizes comes from an endowment that's over 100 years old. It came from the estate of one Alfred Nobel, who is among other things, the inventor of dynamite. The inventor of dynamite. Nobel invented dynamite in the 1860s. It was an amazing invention because what he, what, it, what he did was take nitroglycerin, a very powerful explosive that's exceedingly unstable and dangerous, and he figured out if you combined it with diatomaceous earth, yeah, the same stuff in your pool filter, that it could become a stabilized or, or a more stabilized compound and was thus available for industrial use. In the providence of God, it really was quite an amazing invention. Because at the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century were all the great building projects, many of which require the excavation of tremendous amounts of earth. In fact, in 1914, the Panama Canal opened. And it would not have been possible without the invention of Alfred Nobel and the use of dynamite. Although dynamite is more stable than nitroglycerin, it is still not a safe compound. There were a lot of industrial accidents that occurred using dynamite. Later, inventions of more powerful and more stable explosives like TNT have moved dynamite off to the side and it's not used anymore in industrial projects, certainly not in the Western world. Why do I tell you about dynamite? It's interesting, I suppose, but why do I tell you about dynamite? The reason I tell you about dynamite is because this past week I've been thinking about our series here, Freedom in Christ. And as I've been thinking about the series of Freedom in Christ, I've thought, you know, there's a there's a correlation here between Christian freedom and dynamite. Christian freedom, properly used in the hands of responsible and mature people, is a powerful force for good. Christian freedom, misunderstood, or in the hands of the immature or the arrogant, could become a force that would blow a church apart. So as we come back to this topic again for the fifth time, I pray to God that we would have a spirit of humility as we come to the text. Let the Spirit of God use His Word to transform the way we think about the issues of Christian freedom. We are here in the fifth of six lessons on this great section of the epistle beginning in chapter 14 verse 1 running all the way through chapter 15 and verse 13 we're at the fifth lesson today on the back of your bulletin you'll find an outline for this morning's message and that fifth lesson that we want to focus on together this morning is to put other people first to put other people people first that is the fifth lesson we can learn and draw from paul's discussion of the proper use of christian freedom we are to put other people first you realize there's only one more chapter in this great book wow i'm going to miss i am going to miss the epistle of the romans it has become a an old and dear friend to me and i suspect to many of you Romans chapter 15, page 1138, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible. Page 1138 will land you on the 15th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. The month is October. October is a special month because in the month of October, the Nobel Foundation awards their annual Nobel Peace Prize, or prizes actually, And they're awarded to individuals who, in the opinion of the foundation, have made the greatest contribution to humanity in this prior year. It's interesting because the money behind those prizes comes from an endowment that's over 100 years old. It came from the estate of one Alfred Nobel, who is, among other things... The inventor of dynamite. The inventor of dynamite. Nobel invented dynamite in the 1860s. It was an amazing invention because what he, what, it, what he did was take nitroglycerin, a very powerful explosive that's exceedingly unstable and dangerous, and he figured out if you combined it with diatomaceous earth, yeah, the same stuff in your pool filter, that it could become a stabilized or or more stabilized compound and was thus available for industrial use. In the providence of God, it really was quite an amazing invention. Because the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century were all the great building projects, many of which require the excavation of tremendous amounts of earth. In fact, in 1914, the Panama Canal opened. And it would not have been possible without the invention of Alfred Nobel and the use of dynamite. Although dynamite is more stable than nitroglycerin, it is still not a safe compound. There were a lot of industrial accidents that occurred using dynamite. Later inventions of more powerful and more stable explosives like TNT have moved dynamite off to the side, and it's not used anymore in industrial projects, certainly not in the Western world. Why do I tell you about dynamite? It's interesting, I suppose, but why do I tell you about dynamite? The reason I tell you about dynamite is because this past week I've been thinking about our series here, Freedom in Christ, and as I've been thinking about the series of freedom in Christ, I thought, you know, there's a, there's a correlation here between Christian freedom and dynamite. Christian freedom properly used in the hands of responsible and mature people is a powerful force for good. Christian freedom misunderstood or in the hands of the immature or the arrogant could become a force that would blow a church apart. So as we come back to this topic again for the fifth time, I pray to God that we would have a spirit of humility as we come to the text. Let the Spirit of God use His Word to transform the way we think about the issues of Christian freedom. We are here in the fifth of six lessons on this great section of the epistle beginning in chapter 14 verse 1 running all the way through chapter 15 and verse 13 we're at the fifth lesson today on the back of your bulletin you'll find an outline for this morning's message and that fifth lesson that we want to focus on together this morning is to put other people first to put other people people first that is the fifth lesson we can learn and draw from paul's discussion of the proper use of christian freedom we are to put other people first let me read the text for you beginning in verse one paul says now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Putting other people first. Putting other people first. You know, the first question recorded in the Scriptures on the lips of man is, am I my brother's keeper? Interesting, huh? The very first question recorded in the Scriptures on the lips of man, am I my brother's keeper? Of course, the answer then as the answer today is what? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. We live together in community. We are related to one another in the spirit. We are one another's keeper. We are actively involved in one another's lives and we have an interest in how that comes about. So how do we put other people first? How do we how do we go about doing that? That's the big idea. That's the big lesson here. Put other people first, but how do we do that? Well, here Paul gives us four means. Four simple means I just want to draw out of these verses for us that will enable us to put other people first. If we will take advantage of these four simple means, we will be enabled to put other people first. Number one, by recognizing our obligation to them. By recognizing our obligation to them, verses one and two. Paul says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. It's interesting here. Paul, for the first time, really shows his hand that he includes himself among the strong. Now, we observed this when we, over, we took an overview of this whole section a month and a half ago. But here, Paul actually tips his hand. And he says that he is among the strong. Now, we, you notice that we, right? He's including himself. We who are strong have an obligation here. So he's speaking to himself and he's speaking to all those who identify themselves as strong. If you think you're strong this morning, he's talking to you. He's talking to you. Now, we who are strong. How we relate to the weak is the issue at stake here. How is it that we are to relate to the weak? We who are strong and And he's going to give us some insight here, some important insight. We were strong ought to bear, verse 1 again, the weaknesses of those. Notice here he calls them without strength. Those without strength. Adunatos in the Greek, the the alpha privated, the denial of adunatos, which means powerful. So here it is those without power, the powerless. That's important. That's important. We who are powerful ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are powerless, he says. That's an important insight. The reason it's an important insight is because we need to remember. What we need to remember is that those whose consciences are bound in certain areas in which we find ourselves free in Christ are not bound because they want to be bound. They are not weak in faith because they want to be weak in faith it is the condition in which they now find themselves they have not yet come to a full understanding of the implications of the gospel that they have been saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone they don't yet understand what all that means its its implications in the day to day decisions of life and, and so they are without strength they are powerless they're powerless. It's not that they don't want to change. It is right now they are unable to change. This is, this is a word of ability. They're unable. And the reason that's important for us to, to understand is because it, it changes our attitude towards them. See, now it moves us towards compassion rather than condescension. If we understand that they're in a state of grace right now in which they do they are somewhat powerless they do not fully understand the implications of the gospel and then we have compassion. Compassion. Beyond that, verse 1. Paul says we ought to bear, do you see it? We ought to bear. The Greek word conveys the idea of an obligation or a debt. We are indebted to bear their weakness. We are under an obligation to bear their weakness. We're not to merely tolerate. We're not to ignore. We're under an obligation to come alongside, to to bear, to lift up, to carry along. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2, same word. Bear one another's burdens, Paul says, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What law? John thirteen thirty four that you may love one another, a new commandment I give to you. So we're, we're under an obligation, we who are strong. Those who have spiritual power are under an obligation to come alongside those who are weakened in a weakened state and to lift them up, to bear their burden, to come alongside. So we have to remember something. We are where we are by the grace of God, isn't it true? We have come to know the Savior only by the grace of God. It is He that has opened our eyes. It is He that has done the divine heart surgery. He has removed the heart of stone and replaced it with the heart of flesh, in the words of the prophet Ezekiel. He has placed His Spirit within the words of the prophet Jeremiah. It is by the grace of God that you are saved. It is a gift. Is that right? Ephesians 2. Not only are we saved by grace, but we make progress in the Christian life by... Grace, isn't it true? It is by grace. Front to back, first to last. It is the gospel. A gospel of grace. What does it mean? What it means is that if we are entirely indebted to grace, then there's nothing to be proud or arrogant about. No room for boasting. No room for looking down on those whose spiritual progress doesn't match yours yet. We're to come alongside them, lift them up, bear them along. Now, is Paul saying we need to, uh, to adopt their scruples? Is that what he's saying? No. No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that when we bear their burdens, when we come alongside, is that we are, we are to lovingly understand their weakness and, if necessary, restrict our own exercise of our Christian freedom out of love for them. It's not about us. It's about them. You see at the end of the verse, verse one, take a look at it. Not just please ourselves, right? Not just please ourselves. This is what what it means to bear one another's burdens in this context. To come alongside a weaker brother in this context. Not just please ourselves. It means that we just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something just because we have freedom in a certain area. Christian liberty doesn't mean we necessarily have to exercise that freedom that we have in Christ. See, if it's all about me, then it's all about my freedoms and it's all about doing whatever it is that I can do. I'm free in Christ. Don't talk to me about it. I can do this if I want to. That's completely the opposite. That's dynamite, by the way, that blows up congregations. It's the restriction of our freedom out of love. A couple of weeks ago, pulled up to a traffic light. My 1990 Honda Accord. Four-cylinder, five-speed manual transmission with a brand-new clutch. It's a nice car. More than 200,000 miles on that baby. Next to me, the light was this uh, guy in a Corvette. Lights counting down. Turns green and I start out. I'll go over my shoulder and I couldn't believe it. I beat him off the line. (laughs) I'm just, you know, I'm in a conviction of Romans 13. I'm not speeding. Trust me. You know, but you can come up to, to the speed limit and, you know, it doesn't, the law doesn't say that, right? So, so I came up to speed limit as my 1990 Hunter Accord would permit. But I was astounded. I beat this Corvette. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that in the context here of freedom. And it, it just reminded me, you know, when you, when you drive a Corvette, you don't have to prove to everybody how fast your car is. Did you know that? It's not like every time you come to a traffic light, you look to your left, you look to your right, you go, oh, yeah, I can beat them. Off you go. (laughs) Right? Because I got a fast car. I got a muscle car. I can do it. People with fast cars, they don't necessarily have to drive them fast. It's the same idea with Christian freedom. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And it doesn't mean you have to. It's terribly freeing, by the way, to be free to use your freedom. There's a time to restrict freedom. And that is when the exercise of that freedom is to the detriment of your brother in Christ. At that point in time, you are to come alongside them. You are under an obligation a debt to come alongside those that are powerless in this situation. Those who the grace of God has not liberated them to the extent that he has liberated you. And out of love, you're to restrict the exercise of your freedom. Now, how far does this go? It's a good question, isn't it? How how far does it go? How far do I restrict? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to like just you know go around to the church here and ask every single person, do you, "Do you mind if I do this? Do you mind if I do that?" I mean, do we do we just find the person who's most tightly wound and then everybody just kind of adopts their scruples? No, Paul's not saying that. He's not saying that. The issue the issue comes out of a heart of love. See, if we're trying to figure out the rules, make the list. In this situation, you do this. Over in this situation, you do that. Wow. Back under rules. We're under grace. The grace of God transform our hearts into a heart of love. and, And we'll know when to restrict and when not to restrict. But I can just say it to you this way. You're always better to restrict than not. Can I just say it that way? When in doubt, don't. That's the one with the weaker conscience, right? That was last week's message. Remember that? When in doubt, don't. Chapter 14, verse 23. I'd say to the strong, when in doubt, restrict. It's not going to hurt you. Because you know you're free. And really the joy, again, now I'm preaching last week's sermon here, but the, the joy and the freedom is knowing that you have it, not in the exercise of it. I mean, we don't have to defer to every whim And wish are every single person. That's not the point. By the way, the Apostle Paul does give us some some clarity on these issues. So, So let me do that. Let me take you to a couple of passages here that would give us just a little bit of clarity. You don't turn here. Just mark this one down. You can check it on your own. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is very, very clear in Galatians, the early part of Galatians, and particularly in verse 10, that his willingness to defer and to please others stops at a certain point. And it, the place where it stops is when it impinges upon the gospel. When It impinges on the gospel. Paul says it this way, for, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying that ultimately it's God who I must please because it is God to whom I will give an account. And so I will restrict my freedom. We'll look at another passage in a minute. But I will not restrict my freedom when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. Those essential elements of saving faith, I will not restrict those. So when it comes to the gospel, if if somehow someone is pushing you to restrict your freedom in a way that that diminishes the gospel, it obscures the gospel, it it creates a substitute or a false gospel, then you must not defer. At that point, you must press forward with the truth. But Paul gives us some additional help. Can I just say that I think few of us find ourselves in a position where our freedom is a gospel, the gospel is at stake over our freedom. That's usually not what happens. It's it tends to be more the interpersonal stuff. So take us, let's go over to First Corinthians chapter nine. Get a little help there. Page 1147, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm just gonna pick up verses 22 23 So we've said the discussion in Romans is to some degree duplicated in 1 Corinthians. I don't think they're identical issues, but they're quite similar and there's a lot of crossover. Principles are the same. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, Paul's talking about him, the fact that he is free. Verse 19, I am free from all men, he says. Paul is the one who consummately understood his Christian freedom and what it meant. He is the strong. But notice verse 22, 23. He says, to the weak, and and now we're, we're using identical language. We're talking about the same Situation, brothers and sisters here. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. The weak, those whose consciences are bound by religious scruples. Particularly in the context here, Jewish people still feeling the weight of the mosaic Food regulations and obligations. Paul says to them, I'll restrict my freedom. if It means never eating meat again in order to win them to Christ and to disciple them to maturity in Christ. I will stop eating meat. No more pork chops for me. Among the Gentiles, let's do it. So Paul says he will restrict himself to please others for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Back to Romans 15. Verse 2: Let each of us please his neighbor. Now we kind of understand what that means: to please our neighbor, come alongside them, to restrict our freedom for their benefit, out of love. Ultimately, for their good, to their edification. Do you see it? That is to edify, to build up their faith, not to tear them down. He's not commanding us here to become people pleasers. This is important. We understand this. He's not saying that a, a mature Christian is a people pleaser. What he's saying is a mature Christian is a God pleaser. And being a God pleaser will eventually eventuate on occasion with a voluntary restriction of your own freedom. Big difference. Big difference. We're to please our fellow believers, not just ourselves. The goal of our own restraint is what? It is the edification, in verse 2, the edification of our brother and sister in Christ. It's their edification. It's not to tear them down. Back up to verse 15, chapter 14. Do not, end the verse, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died if the exercise of your freedom is going to destroy your brother, then love necessitates and dictates that you restrain your freedom in that context. That's a mature thing to do. That's a proper handling of the dynamite. Maybe I can illustrate this for you. One of the first, first preaching opportunities that I ever had was back in 1985. In 1985, I was through a series of events was asked by a business associate to preach in their church. He was a believer. I was a believer. We discovered that about each other and we had some mutual encouragement. And I was asked to come preach on a Sunday in their church. It was a little teeny independent fundamental Baptist church way up in the northern extremes of Maine, very rural area. In those days, I used a An NIV Bible translation, New International Version. And I was prepared my sermon and I was all ready to tuck my Bible under my arm and go up there and my wife with me to preach in that church. And she so wisely said to me, she said, you know, maybe you should take your King James Bible instead. I said, oh, honey, you know, I don't really care for that anymore. I I like this translation better. I think it's clearer anyway. She said, no, I I really think you should take your King James. She said, because think of it this way. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, right? (laughs) She said, if you take the King James, you'll never offend anybody. If you take any other translation, and particularly into that context, you might. Okay, got my big black leather King James under my arm and up we go. And you know, wow, is that the right decision? Before church, people were fellowshipping and talking, and I overheard this old lady talking to this other old lady in the back of the church, and she was going on and on about how any other translation except the King James was from the devil. <laughs> I thought, oh great. <laughs> so this morning we have as a guest preacher for us, David Forrest, I thought, Well, open the devil Bible and preach to us. All right? I mean, that's a, that's a place to restrict your freedom for the benefit of your brother. Because if I'd have used any other, it wouldn't have been just the NIV, if I'd have used any other translation in that little teeny context, about 30 people, they wouldn't have had heard a word I said. They would not have heard a word I said. There would have been no edification, no building up. It would have been pleasing to them in any way. And in fact, it, it would have provoked them. It would provoke them. So we have to we have to restrict sometimes our freedom. That's one means, okay? That's one means. There are three more. Three more. <laughs> by recognizing our obligation, secondly, by reflecting on the life of Christ. Reflecting on the life of Christ. Verse three. Notice how Paul brings Christ to bear on this as his like consummate example of this. For even Christ did not please himself. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of the insults of those who reproached you fell upon me. Psalm 69, verse 9, second half. He brings the example of Christ to bear on this. Now, Jesus' public life and ministry was all about pleasing the Father, isn't that right? Right? He said, I I came to do the Father's will. My food is to do the will of the Father. John chapter 4, verse 34. John chapter 8, verse 29. I always do those things that are pleasing to the Father, he says. Christ is the consummate example of one who came to please the Father and not himself. And not himself. I mean, think with me on this for a moment. Second person of the triune Godhead, right? Lord of all creation. If anyone has a right to be served, to be pleased, to have everything work out for their benefit, it would be him. Isn't that true? And yet, this one, as it is written, verse 3, took upon himself the insults intended for God. He took to himself the insult intended to God. Psalm 69. A messianic psalm. It's quoted several times in the New Testament. We don't know exactly what specific event in his life is being referred to here. We don't, we don't know that. Perhaps, perhaps on the cross, right, he's being reviled on the cross. Maybe that's it, but, but we're not sure. I think personally this is just more of a general statement about his life. Earlier part of the verse, the zeal for thy house has consumed me. Therefore, the reproaches intended for God come upon me. He took God's hits for him, as it were. All of the anger of, a, of humanity and rebellion against their creator was directed towards Christ. And yet he didn't deserve it. Isn't that true? He didn't deserve any of it. But he voluntarily surrendered and took it. I mean, you know this to be true. Shortly before his crucifixion, he's on his way to Jerusalem, right? He's revealed the fact that he's going to be crucified and, and buried and raised on the third day. And his kingdom is, is coming in, they they believe. And and uh, James and John, they get him aside with their mother. And, and they say, okay, wow, kingdom's coming. Here we go. How about... Can we have left and right hand? That's all we want. We don't want much. We just want left and right hands of the kingdom, like number one and two. All the other disciples, they get angry. They find out about this. They get really angry because they wanted number one and two. Because they've been arguing the whole way to Jerusalem about who's going to be number one, who's going to be number two. And Jesus gathers them together, and he he just says this amazing thing. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Same way that... That he uses himself here in the words of Christ as an example. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. See, if if even Christ is not about pleasing himself, is not about being served, but about serving others, then how can we who bear his name be anything less? That's Paul's argument here back in Romans. We won't turn there, but you can just mark these down. Check them on your own. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. This idea of, of using Christ as an example. He is our Savior. We have to be careful. I mean, the liberals always talk about Christ as just our example. And they, they get off track. They forget the fact that He is not just our moral example, He is our Savior. He is our substitutionary atonement. But He is. Still our example. In fact, here, we'll go ahead and do it. First Corinthians chapter ten. I'm gonna show you this. First Corinthians chapter ten, end of the, end of the chapter, verse thirty one, page eleven forty eight. We have to hold on to these twin these twin ideas. Christ is our Savior. He's also our example. The New Testament is not afraid to use him that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. This is autobiog- autobiographical out of the life of the Apostle Paul. Verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. Verse 32, we're not done yet. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all many in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Bad chapter break. Bad chapter break. What Paul says is, listen. Listen. I am imitating Christ when I restrict my freedom for the proclamation of the gospel, for the unity of the body. I'm imitating Christ. Romans 15, verse 3. What are the means by which we put other people first? Well, it's by recognizing our obligations to them. It's by reflecting on the life of Christ. By reflecting on the life of Christ. Verse 3. Just seriously thinking about, you know, it's really great to read the Gospels. Just read the Gospels and marinate in the life of Christ. And it changes you. It will change you. So, reflecting on the life of Christ. Second. Third. Third means, by which we put other people first, is by regularly reading the Scriptures, verse 4. Regularly reading the Scriptures. Paul goes on, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul has just cited a piece of Psalm 69, verse 9. Evidently, it just kind of brings forward to his thinking the whole issue of the Old Testament and the citation of the Old Testament and what is it all about? And he makes a very general statement here, verse 4, about the Scriptures, about the Old Testament and their significance to the follower of Jesus Christ. Very significant statement. Why did God cause the Old Testament to be written? Why did God cause the Old Testament to be written? Well, there are actually a number of answers to that question. There are not just one answer. There are a number of answers, and one answer is given to us here. The answer that Paul gives us here is that in God's providence, he wanted to provide us with a means, that is for all future generations, a means by which the believers could be encouraged to endure the present distress until the time of the return of Messiah. till he comes, till he sets up his kingdom. Right? Through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, the end of verse 4, we might have hope. What hope? The hope that it's not always going to be like this. Messiah is coming. Amen? And when he comes, it's not going to be like this anymore. There won't be weak believers. There'll be no need to restrict freedom. We'll fully understand our freedom. Evil will be done away with. I think back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Why was that written down? Why do we get Genesis 3:15? Why was that recorded? He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The very first inkling of the Messiah, right? It's not going to always be messed up. Satan is powerful, but he will not always reign. He will be crushed by the coming one. When we read these things, we're given perseverance, we're given encouragement, we're given hope. helps us hang on. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, right? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scriptures, which, of course, when Paul writes that, is a reference to the Old Testament. The Old Testament plays a very significant role in the life of the New Testament believer. Now, as I was thinking about that, it just really spurred me with the issue of Bible reading. Year after year after year in your bulletin every week is a schedule for Bible reading. The secretaries put that in there because they're exceedingly bored during the week and they have no idea what else to do with their time. No. Why is it there? It is there to encourage you and to provide a means by which you may systematically read the Scriptures, and then if you'll be diligent in these things, in one year's time you will have read through the Bible entirely, front to back. Front to back. There are many other plans. In fact, next year I think we're going to try a chronolog- chronological approach. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. It sounds like this morning's message. Read the Bible. God has given it to us. You know, I was seen a little more on this, and just a couple of observations for you. Here's one. When Jesus goes to his people, and he preaches to them, and they, re, they refuse him, later, later part of Matthew's gospel, he, he uses this expression several times with them. He says, have you not read? Isn't that interesting? Have you not read? I mean, you should know this. You should know this. There's another one for you. You go to the New Testament, the epistles of the Apostle Paul, right? He's writing to Gentile churches, the Apostle of the Gentiles. They're laced with Old Testament citations with little or no explanation of context or why they're there. Do you ever think about that? He's not writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to Gentiles. And yet he laces his writings. We observed this a long time ago. The, The letter to the church at Rome is the most, for the Apostle Paul, the most Old Testament citations appear here. And Paul is free to do it. He feels no compunction about it, of holding back in any way. He just laces it with Old Testament quotations. Why? Why does he do that? The reason is is because he expects the listener and the reader to know these things. And what they do not know, he expects them to go find out. Think with me on this. The regular, systematic, lifetime reading of the Bible. Just that. Just reading of the Bible puts into your heart and mind the vocabulary of God and the raw materials by which the Spirit of God then matures us in our walk of faith. That's profound. That is absolutely profound. See, if we don't take in very much Bible, we're not giving the Spirit very much to work with. The Spirit uses His Word to convert us and to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. It is by our submission to the Word of God. And so if there's not very much in there, there's not much to work with. God expects us to know and believe His Word. It was written for our instruction verse 4. He matures us in Christ. By using that which has been put into our heart. Your word have I hid in my heart that I may not, what? Sin against you. Fourth. Fourth means by which we put other people first. By requesting that God grant us a common devotion. By requesting that God grant us a common devotion. Verses 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement... Grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Fascinating, by the way. You see perseverance and encouragement. Beginning of verse 5, you see it at the end of verse 4. What Paul says is that the perseverance and encouragement that, that comes from the Scriptures ultimately comes from God, the author of the Scriptures. And so Paul prays for the church at Rome. Now... May the God who does these things give this to you, he says. This is Paul's prayer wish on their behalf. He's he's praying for them. He's praying for their unity. God will grant them unity. And it's a process that begins with our thinking. Right? You see it? Verse 5. That he may grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Jesus. Now, when he prays to be of one mind, he, he's not praying that we all think exactly alike, like little cookie cutter Christians, little tin soldiers. I mean, he's gone on and on about this, right? Be persuaded in your own heart before God. You'll give an account at the Bema seat judgment of Christ. It's not that we all come to the exact same opinion. That's not his point. What his point is, is that we come to understand the mind of Christ in this matter. And that is the valuing of the unity of the church for which Christ gave his own blood to purchase. And that we value one another as image bearers of God and recreated in Christ. That we willingly will restrict ourselves for the benefit of someone else. That's what it means to be of the same mind. To be of the same mind. Take on the values and priorities Christ. This is huge. This is a very, very key point in, in our whole discussion of Christian freedom. It's not thinking alike. That is not what it means that we come to one mind in a matter, that we come to unity. Is not that we all think alike. With regard to the exercise of our freedoms. It means that we come to understand and value the body of Christ. That's what it means. We come to understand and value the body of Christ, which leads us to lovingly restrict our freedoms for the benefit of one another. We actually can rejoice in being different. Isn't that interesting? This is powerful, by the way, for a gospel proclamation. The world is divided. Sin has ravaged humanity. People are broken down into all kinds of little groups. And these groups are at war with one another. In the places where there is not government to restrain it, it actually breaks out into bloodshed. People literally kill each other over things. And then there's us. We're drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Isn't that right? I mean, you can look around the room. Take a good look. We have all kinds of ethnicities sitting here this morning, all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, all kinds of educational achievements. There's everything in the world to drive us apart and only one thing to pull us together. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And see, there's the power of gospel proclamation, because what it does is it takes a fractured, splintered humanity that they have their hands around each other's throats, and it turns them from enemies to God and enemies with each other to lovers of God and lovers of one another. That is powerful. That is powerful gospel proclamation. And it is that kind of unity lived out in the body of Christ unity in the midst of diversity when we actually can celebrate our differences and be thankful that God has made you this way and you this way and me this way. And you don't have to be like me and I don't have to be like you. We're an individual before Christ and yet we're one together in love. When that happens. Verse six. The outcome is with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will offer worship to God that the world cannot ignore. One accord, one voice singing our praises and glory to God. And that's what breaks my heart. When you hear about churches that fight about worship styles. There's no bigger travesty than a church that fights about worship styles that which is to demonstrate to the world our corporate identity in Christ when we all come together with one mind and one accord and sing our praise and speak our praise and glory to God, and people are fighting. It's the exact antithesis to the gospel. Church divisions, they rob the church of its power and they dim its gospel light. But when a church is unified in the Spirit, It's a powerful witness. Powerful witness. And it doesn't happen, by the way. It doesn't happen without the spirit-backed proclamation of the Word of God and the earnest and heartfelt prayer of the people of God. The Apostle Paul has been hammering away on his theology here, but now he stops to pray, to pray that God would bring it about. Let me ask you a question. Do you pray for the unity of this church? Is that a regular item on your prayer list? Do you beseech the God of glory to pour forth His mercy and grace upon us, to enable us to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ and to love one another with a supernatural love motivated by the indwelling spirit that allows us to come together in a way that proclaims the truth of Christ to everyone who looks. Do you pray these things? If you don't, why don't you? Why don't you? Will you start now? Maybe this is and kind of off your radar, you haven't really thought about that too much. I urge you. I urge you. Will you join with us in praying earnestly that God would grant us a common devotion to Christ? See, here's the answer to those prayers. Let's where it will be turned upside down. Upside down. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, God of glory. To even speak those words is an amazing thing. How could we? Children of Adam. With feet of clay. Warped and bent and twisted in sin. How can we call out to you? Oh, Lord, you don't incinerate us. You welcome us. It can only be because of Christ. It can only be because our sin has been atoned for in Christ. It can only be because... We are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. And that can only be. Because you have first loved us. O Lord God of glory. We desire. That that glory would be on display through this fellowship. We ask you, we beseech you, we beg you. To pour out your mercy upon us. Humble our hearts, O God. Teach us to value that which you value. To love the things that you love. To hate the things that you hate. Fill our hearts with hope and perseverance. Let us not seek to find our joy here in this broken world. For it cannot be found. The Lord, lift our eyes from the horizon. Let us gaze into the heavenlies. Let us saturate our minds and our hearts and our brains with the word of God. Let us look upon Christ, our Savior and our example. And may your spirit transform us. The Lord, help us to love one another with a true Biblical love. Not for our own blessing and benefit. But that the world, the cosmos, could look on and see sinners who have become saints. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.